0: I tried to set up my life in a way that I could take risks, so that when there were years where I made a lot of money in Hollywood by being like a screenwriter, I didn't spend it all, which allowed me to go take the risks of making a movie like Solitary Man.
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now, some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of this year. In anticipation of the book, we're releasing interviews from the archives this month. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. So we've been releasing the oldest ones first and proceeding chronologically. In January of 2017, Debbie spoke with Brian Koppelman about why he became a writer after years as a record promoter and producer. I realized I would become
0: toxic, that something would die in me, and that if I allowed that to happen, that toxicity would spread to those that I loved.
1: Brian Koppelman, after the break. Brian Koppelman
2: makes media, a lot of media. Films, TV shows, podcasts, records. As for movies, he co-wrote Oceans 13 and Rounders, he produced The Illusionist and The Lucky Ones, and he's directed many others. His podcast on Slate, which covers pop culture and politics, is called The Moment. He's the co-creator and showrunner for the TV show Billions, which is about to start its second season on Showtime. If that's not enough Brian Cobbleman for you, he's also a prolific and ferocious tweeter. He's here today to go way beyond 140 characters and talk about his career, his productions, and his politics. Brian Koppelman, welcome to Design Matters.
0: I'm so happy to be here.
2: Brian, is it true that your father's uncle, a man named Morris Koppelman, created a patent for making the first ever egg carton?
0: Seth Godin gave you that for sure. Oh, no, he that did definitely, not. Definitely, because you've had a long talk
2: about it. Yeah, <laughs> Really? My. You did? When the, I swear yeah. to God, he did he, not. That's
0: his favorite fact. Like, oh, okay. to go well, back of course and forth. it is. That's why we uh, love we each other. We talk about it. Yep. Um, yeah, my dad's great... Like, I think great, great uncle, uncle yeah. Morris, Morris did invent, uh, has a patent for the egg carton. That's and true. is
2: the family still receiving residuals, royalties? No, ne- no,
0: no. Morris was a great inventor and I think a bad businessman.
2: Aren't they o- almost there are always, no... other than Steve Jobs and maybe one or two others, Yes, Yes, right?
0: there, there's been nothing but, uh, in, you know, familial pride is about all that we got out of that.
2: And was he also an egg farmer?
0: All I know about him is the legend. And then because there was no financial benefit, at a certain point, my sisters and I became really skeptical of that story. It sounded made up. So when the Internet got really good and thorough, I did search for it at some point just to see if it was true. And it turned out to be true.
2: Well, just so you know, I found it on your father's Wikipedia page. Great. (laughs) You grew up on Long Island. I believe in Roslyn. And I understand that you have an undying and sometimes heretical love for pizza. Is there a pizza place I need to know about in Roslyn? I grew up there, too.
0: This podcast could become very long because there are a few things about which I'd call myself an expert, but pizza is one of them. But the old slice joints that I probably went to as a kid are mostly gone. And... Long Island's had an explosion of gourmet pizza, supposed gourmet pizza. Uh, I think Joanne's Pizza on Long Island is really great. What's your favorite pizza joint in Manhattan? Salon Carmine's. If, we, if you go to Salon Carmine's on 101st Street and Broadway, but you have to go when they're making hot, fresh pies. Don't get an old pie. You have to get a slice off one that just came out of the pizza oven. But their crust is different than anybody else's. I mean, they're really famous. They've been there for like 70 years.
2: I mentioned your father. He is a major business titan. When you were growing up, he was the general manager of worldwide publishing for CBS Records and chairman of EMI Music Publishing. And he's worked with legends like Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Cher, Billy Joel. The list goes on and on. What was that like for you growing up with a father that was so powerful?
0: That's not the way in which I thought of him. And in fact, he wouldn't have called himself like a business titan he ran emi later when i was in college out of college actually uh he was a record maker really that's really what he did and he discovered i grew up people ready right? he didn't yeah. discover
2: P- phoebe snow and janice Ian. some of the many greats, people yeah. love and
0: spoonful and songwriters like tim harden so the great benefit that i had was i grew up in recording studios i would spend uh, all night with him he was a great dad he still is and he would bring me with him Because his hours were strange, you know, when you're in that business. And so when he was making Barbara Streisand's records, he was picking the songs that she would record, and he was in the studio overseeing the recordings. And so he would bring me with him, so I'd be 11 or 12 years old. So you were 11 or 12
2: years old hanging out with Barbara Streisand?
0: Yeah. For me, the great thing was getting to hang out with the musicians. The studio players in those days were people who also made records. So the people in bands like Toto... And a bunch of other really famous bands, those guitar players and bass players and drummers, when they weren't on the road, they would be the backing bands for all these singers. And so I would get to hang out with those guys. And that was a trip to me. They'd talk to me. And that was a great education. I was always really interested in how people lived the life of an artist, even when I was really young. And so I would constantly kind of ask about how they did it and why they did it. That was the other thing. You know, when did you first fall in love with the bass guitar? that, That stuff was always incredibly animating to me. And so that part of growing up with somebody who did that was an absolute joy for me. My favorite thing to do was go spend time in a recording studio. You started
2: managing local Long Island bands when well, you were 13. Well, how could I 13, not at that point? Yeah. But 13. And so you'd go to these local bands, and you were a kid, and you must have looked like a kid.
0: I really did look like did a kid. Did they take
2: you seriously to be their manager at 13? You know,
0: I could. yeah, I could talk.
2: <laughs> Even back then? Yeah. And any bands that we might recognize I mean, at not, that point? Not
0: then. Like, the best guitarist like, in my school... He was really incredibly gifted guitar player. His name is Peter Zizzo. So I like, managed his band, which really just meant getting them some gigs or convincing a club owner to book an underage band. But he ended up becoming a really successful songwriter. His, Celine Dion's recorded like eight of his songs, and uh, he worked with Avril Lavigne and many other sort of very famous people. And w- he and I grew up together doing this stuff.
2: I believe that you first met the comedian Eddie Murphy and orchestrated his first record deal through the machinations of booking bands at local nightclubs. So is it true that we have you to thank for the hit single, Party All the Time? Sure,
0: you could say that.
2: (laughs) So how did you make that happen? Was it through the different connections that you had already established? What made you decide that Eddie Murphy was ripe for recording?
0: So I was managing this folk singer... I won't say his name, but he had, like, a very, very Jewish name. And I knew Eddie Murphy had just been on one year of SNL, and he was a featured player. And I got this guy, his, his, the guy's last name was Hurwitz, and I got him to open for uh, Eddie at this local club, and he just got booed off the stage. I mean, the second he walked out, someone in the audience just was like, I thought Eddie Murphy was black. They shouted. And then the whole audience, like, <laughs> oh. laughed at Ethan... And at one point, the lights went down because he went from guitar to piano. And then they all cheered that he was done. And then when it came up and he was sitting at the piano, they booed. It was a terrible night. He was only like 16 or 17. I was 15 or 16. But I hung around after to watch Eddie. And Eddie hit the stage. And he tore it up like nobody I'd ever seen in my life. That amount of charisma, the power that he had, his ability to improvise and make the whole club fall in love with him. And so I snuck backstage uh, after. And I introduced myself. And I said, like, why aren't you making albums? And I met his manager, and then I went home and I woke my father in the middle of the night. And I said, like, this guy's a comedian, but he's like a rock star. You have to make a record with him. And so the next day they got together and made a deal and then made three, those three first Eddie Murphy comedy albums. Eddie Murphy Comedian and Delirious. And I think Raw might have been also in that same thing. Oh, so Party All so was the Time wasn't really no, on the party table. No, what, Party, party <laughs> All the Time was on that first album. Oh, okay. I didn't even realize no, that. As okay. was, as was uh, Boogie in the Butt. Really? Yes.
2: Okay, who knew? Thank you for for clarifying. Um, I know you went to Tufts University and you majored in English. At that point, were you planning on going into the music business?
0: I thought that I probably would, but I was always a huge reader. Reading was, um, you know, listening to music, watching movies, seeing comedians, and reading were the things that I, and the New York Knicks, were the things that I cared the most about. And um, I would never have called myself a writer at that time, but I was, in the back of my mind, you know, there was some sort of an idea that, Expressing myself in that in that way was something that I should probably do.
2: While at Tufts, and and this is a, a fairly famous story for people that are aware of your wide body of work, uh, you discovered the amazing singer songwriter Tracy Chapman, and I believe that this was during a boycott of the university because of its endowment. Was she protesting? Was she doing we protest were, songs? We
0: were we were protesting, and yeah, Tracy for sure was always doing protest song. I mean, her her work was certainly in a strong social justice tradition from the very beginning. I mean, the first song in her first album is talking about a revolution, but it sounds like a whisper. And as you know, you know, she became famous because she played at the Nelson Mandela, Free Nelson Mandela thing. So yeah, that was always a bedrock, cornerstone part of what she did. Uh, so I was in college from 84 to 88. And at that time, uh, many colleges were invested in companies doing business with South Africa. And this is during apartheid South Africa. And so as students became aware of it, particularly in the Northeast, they decided to try and change that policy. And so I was one of the people leading that movement at Tufts. We had organized an all-day boycott of classes uh, in a sign of protest. And we're going to have performers. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should see this woman, Tracy Chapman. She would be good to play at this rally. And I went to see her. And then when I did, it was a true epiphanic moment. I've rarely experienced something like that. You know, like when I met my wife and when I walked into a poker club years later and realized that that was a movie. Moments where you feel like from somewhere you're just completely dumbstruck. Uh, You have an insight that you didn't even know you wanted to have before. And when I saw Tracy, she played Talking About a Revolution and a song called Across the Lines and I couldn't believe the voice she had and the song she was singing and what she was singing about and her presence. And the next two years of my life were really just focused on finding a way to get her music to the world.
2: I have moments where a song that I hear for the first time makes an indelible mark in me. I don't forget where I was, what I was wearing, what I was thinking, what I was doing. Fast Car was one of those songs.
0: Sure. Yeah. That happened to many people. I heard where were you?
2: I was in an office. I'm a little bit older than you are. I was in an office. It came on the radio and I stopped. I just stopped. It made everybody stop. I just needed to listen to this song. And I was wearing this ridiculous sort of eighties business outfit and had big eighties hair and I was listening to this song.
0: Yeah, it was an incredible thing to be a small part of. A
2: small part. You executive produced her first album. I mean, she wrote and sang she the She received I six Grammy Awards. You I helped.
0: I helped. But she did it.
2: I, I mean, if you had described her to a record executive at the time, she would have hardly seemed a success slam dunk.
0: Well, no, that that's true. They all passed on her. When we brought Tracy around to the record companies only once, most of them passed. And it was a great, really empowering lesson. You know, I was young enough that I thought it was outrageous that they would pass, that because I knew how great she was, and I didn't care about their commercial considerations or the way in which they would frame their commercial considerations seemed absurd to me. But I watched the group think about a performer like that at that time, and it really was an empowering thing that I took forward, so that I, even when I switched and became an artist and uh, started writing, I never lost sight of the fact that experts are really often wrong about something new. And the more stridently they state that position and stake out the lines of their terrain, the more wrong that they are. Why do you think that is? Because um, it's scary to say yes to something and it's easy to say no. Um, And I think that if I want to look at it charitably, these people had probably taken risks and those risks had gone poorly for them. Or they'd been chastised for suggesting that their bosses look at something that was outside of the mainstream. But as I've seen it repeat itself in the movie business and the television business, I've realized that they're all working from a place of what essentially what was successful six months ago, three months ago. It's the very rare person who can understand that they should think about none of that. And they should, especially if we're talking about the arts, that they should just check in with themselves and figure out if they were moved by it. Because if a piece of art can really move you, then it can move many, many, many people. We're all different, but we are at core quite similar. And so the thing that I saw was that whenever Tracy would perform, people would start crying. (laughs) And, And so if she had that effect on these people and on me, and on really, there were nights when I would be the only male in the room. You know, she was playing to groups of 300 women. And I would watch, like, it hit me the same way it hit them. And then we would go to New Hampshire or somewhere else in Massachusetts. Or New- It didn't matter where she performed. It didn't matter whether the people knew her music ahead of time. When she would walk on stage, they'd fall to pieces. That was an incredibly rare thing. And so I never doubted it. I didn't know she was going to sell 13 million albums. But I knew she, she was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a recording artist.
2: In an interview you had with Tim Ferriss on his podcast, you stated that you learned about rejection from the music business, watching experts be wrong over and over, made it not crushing to face your own rejection. How open are you to rejection? Do you sort of take it in stride? Do you still... I mean, I'm enormously sensitive to if somebody doesn't like the way my hair looked that
0: day, you know? so. Um, well, well you've got to separate the initial emotional reaction. I'm not impervious to pain. But I very quickly go from that, the sting of it very quickly to an analytical place. Very, very quickly to, okay, what's the merit in this point of view? Does something in the work have to change? If it does, how do I change it? If not, move on. Ignore the rejection. Because I've seen it play out so many times. You know, when we wrote our first screenplay, just watching what happened, the way in which the very same people who rejected it all wanted to be a part of it, just one week later made me know how foolish it would be to imbue their judgment with anything other than the sort of commercial consideration of it. Like, oh, right now, these people don't think it's commercially viable. That's it. That's all I can take from that rejection, unless there's something specific that somebody says. I mean, you know how it is. It will hit off of you In a certain way, if it has validity separate from the position that they have in the world. Absolutely. And sometimes that's more maddening because when you know that they're right, Right. it's painful. (laughs) That's when it's painful, right? If a rejection is for a specific reason and maybe it was the thing you knew secretly you hadn't yet fixed, you hadn't quite nailed it, then then, okay, great. They caught me. I got to go back and work. But most of the time, that's not the case because... My creative partner, David, and I, we workshop stuff before we present it to the world. And we also have our friends who do what we do, like read it or watch it, so that we're pretty aware of where the traps are before we're engaging with the world.
2: Brian, why did you go to law school?
0: Social justice reasons, originally. I'd read Morris D.'s book, A Season for Justice. Morris D. started the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I read his book, and he talked about having some success as a young person and then realizing he had a debt society, and he he basically bankrupted the Klan. He put together the lawsuit that functionally bankrupted them nationally. It was an incredible thing. And so that's what originally triggered me. That and the deeper thing was I was still running from becoming the person who did the work, the artist. Really? Yeah, because I, being in the music business and shepherding artists and all that stuff was great, but it wasn't really that satisfying. At law school, as I would write stuff, and I realized I liked doing that. Um, and there was a reason to do it, because I had to for law school. But I quickly realized I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to spend my life doing that. I read that you
2: were really impacted by how the Cohen brothers and Spike Lee captured a new kind of language. Uh, what you referred to as both spoken and visual, and then years later, when you saw Pulp Fiction, opening night was to you the way people talk about seeing the Beatles on yeah, Ed Sullivan. That's
0: completely true. Um,
2: so, talk about that that moment. Well, that was college. another one so of I those in, moments. Yeah, for you. I was
0: in college. Well, so Spike Lee' his movie, She's Got to Have It, and the Coen Brothers' Raising Arizona came out within a few months of one another, and I remember going to see She's Got to Have It. I'd never heard of Spike, because it was his first that movie. movie
2: destroyed me.
0: Yeah. I couldn't handle it. First yeah. of all, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then also, it mattered so much. Yeah. The visual style and the sense of humor of it and what it was about killed me. I went back three nights in a row. I brought Each night, I brought more friends to see the film. And I memorized it. And then, soon thereafter, I went to see Raising Arizona and did the same thing. And that kind of planted a seed, right? I didn't do this work for a very long, 11 years after that, until we wrote our first movie. But... That's when I I realized there's this language in both a visual and a verbal language. And people can use language in film in, in this very specific way. But yes, in 94, when I saw Pulp Fiction, the world exploded for me.
2: The first movie you wrote is a film called Rounders, which you wrote with your writing partner, David Levine. And you first met David back on Long Island when you were 14. You've been best friends ever since. And I read that when you were first doing press for Rounders, you got so bored with the same questions you were being asked over and over about how you met. You started to make up exaggerated stories. Yeah, I don't even remember them, but
0: we did. We so made up a really lot of stories. it's really hard to, like,
2: find the origin story, the actual true origin story. No, we of met. All the we didn't meet ones. on Long Island.
0: We met on a... Uh, like a bus tour of the American West. That's actually how we at met. At JFK? Did you really yeah, meet yeah, at JFK? Yeah, that's really where we at met. At the airport? Yeah.
2: <laughs> and was it one of those moments, like boom, we're best friends No, we forever? became
0: best friends like the first day or second day that we met. Yeah, we did. We, bond- we bonded right away somehow. He was 14. I had just turned 16. And uh, we were the only kids who read on that thing. We both had books. And I really, in a really goofy way, I walked around with like a valise full of cassette tapes. Really. So I was like really I nerdy did that later in and life geeky. With
2: CD cases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I walked around
0: basically I wanted an iPad. I really wanted like an iPhone or iPod then. They didn't have it so I had to have my own. So I would walk around with like 60 or 80 cassette tapes all the time. And somehow Dave was like, "Oh yeah, that's the dude I want to be friends with."
2: You've stated that the key to a good collaboration is to be grateful for what the other person brings to the collaboration. How do you write with David? How do you write with a partner?
0: Well, it's shifted over the years. And the way we basically work now is we outline together. So we will go through the whole story together. And then we write the scenes separately. So we break the whole thing down into scenes together in a room. Here's the way the story is going to lay out. And then he'll take half of it. I'll take half of it. And we go away. And then we... Have a master document, and we'll submit those scenes as we write them to the master document. And then one of us will go through it first and do a polish, and then the other one will go through it, and we just switch off.
2: But how do you come up with the original idea? How did you come up with an idea? Let's do a gambling movie where one guy's got out of the business, and a friend comes out of jail, and you know, like, how does that happen?
0: Well, that one happened because I, I had never in my life had I smoked a cigarette, and I, I'd hated cigarettes, and I caught myself in my office late at night eating like a cheeseburger and smoking. And I was miserable. Uh, And I realized what I was miserable about was Amy and I had had our first child and I wanted to be the kind of person who would say to his kids, go chase your dreams, be anything you want. And I, I saw that I wasn't doing that and that I'd be a hypocrite. So I went to Dave was tending bar across town from where I was. And I went and I said, look, man, I I have to figure out how to do this. I really want to write a screenplay. And he'd been writing and tending bar. And he said, well, we'll write a screenplay together and then you'll learn how to do it and we'll we'll really do it. And we started talking about what themes would interested us and, and we had this idea of the, a kind of friendship between two people. And we had a couple of scenes, uh, like there's a scene in Rounders when one guy is hiding out in a gym and the other guy goes and finds him in the middle of the night. We had that scene really early on, but we didn't know what they were going to be exactly. And then... One night I walked into a poker club, and as soon as I walked in and heard the people talking and looked around, it was an illegal poker club in Manhattan on 24th Street. Uh, I called him in the middle of the night, and I said, dude, we're going to make a poker movie. And he said, yeah, I get it. And then he came the next night to the club, and then we knew where these guys were going to live.
2: You've written or directed or produced a number of... Poker-oriented or casino-oriented films, Runner, Runner, Rounders, Ocean's 13. You also created the TV show Tilt, which was a series set against the backdrop of a fictional world championship of poker tournament. You were also cast in a bit part as a card player in Tony Gilroy's amazing film,
0: Michael Clayton. Hey, hey that's no bit part. A
2: part. Thank you. A part.
0: Thank you very much.
2: What is it you like so much about gambling?
0: It's not gambling. It's poker. It's poker. That's fascinating to me. Gambling, although I've written about all sorts of gambling and know about it, what I'm really fascinated by, the thing that's really continues to be almost an obsession to me, is professional poker players. It's such an incredibly difficult thing to be, to believe that you can outsmart everybody else at the table, that you have the guts to make the call at the moment when you have a very slim edge that you can read when the other person's lying or when they're telling the truth. They're like modern-day gunslingers to me, and they always have been. And it's another life. If I had another shot, it's another thing that I would do. I'm just not quite a good enough card player. But the world of poker has never stopped being something that I love.
2: How do you manage your tells? Right? <laughs> You're not going to tell us? No, it's hard.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's hard.
2: So you're also very involved in meditation. Yeah. That is a a big part of your life. Yes. Do you find that meditation and this sort of inner calibration necessary for playing poker well, have something in common?
0: Well, awareness. So one of the ways in which people manage tells, I guess, is that instead of making it about you, you make it about the other players. So you're living in a posture of curiosity and fascination, right? What's going on with them? What's happening over here? So instead of being obsessed with my own state, right, I'm looking and noticing. So certainly that stuff ties in in some way. Meditation wasn't in no way driven by a desire to be, like, better at playing cards.
2: Just better at life, right?
0: Yeah, I practice Transcendental Meditation, which is, you know, silent mantra meditation. And it is a way to gain some calmness and some stillness and a bit of peace. And has the practical effect of, for me, reducing like, physical manifestations of anxiety by a really big amount. The same amount that those symptoms would be reduced by taking Lexapro or something.
2: There's a lot of intense emotionality in your movies and in your TV shows. In a podcast with Seth Godin, you talk about how movie executives take comfort in decisions on which they can't get fired. Yeah. But most of your films have some element of risk-taking, chance-making, gambling. And I don't mean gambling. I mean it rhetorically, sort of life gambling. Yeah. Your screenplays aren't cliches. There isn't always a predictably happy ending. And I'm thinking of Solitary Man, for example. And yet you've managed to have a career in this industry for decades now. How do you manage this sort of risk-adverse, try-not-to-take-gambles tenants of the movie business?
0: I tried to set up my life in a way that I could take risks. So that Amy and I thought a lot about the way in which we wanted to live. So that when there were years where I made a lot of money in Hollywood by being like a screenwriter... I didn't spend it all, which allowed me to go take the risks of making a movie like Solitary Man. So there have certainly been years when I've when it's been close to the line where, you know, we're living out of savings and we're looking at each other and not sure because I'm and making, She's a novelist. She's a novelist and we're making an independent... Dave and I are making an independent film. But when I made the decision with Amy that this was the life I was going to chase, we were really aware because I wasn't... Tw- I was 30 and I had a career. And we were really aware that we were taking a chance together that this could work. We were aware of the choice we were making, which was to live as writers and filmmakers. And I always wanted the ability to turn down Hollywood jobs that I didn't want to take. Even when I talk about, like, knowing I had to be a writer or not want to take those jobs, for me, those weren't sort of a feat notions the fuller thought was that i realized i was a blocked person a blocked writer and that thing of me sitting smoking and eating a cheeseburger um late at night in this office is that i realized i would become toxic that something would die in me and that if i allowed that to happen that toxicity would spread to those that i loved that was really the thought because when something dies it becomes toxic and it spreads and i didn't want to become toxic And so I've always had an awareness that if I'm not leading from a place of curiosity and fascination, I become sad and angry and miserable, and then I could be that way to the people that I love. And that instead, if I'm leading from those places, and I feel like even if, That means I make a movie like Solitary Man that, while incredibly well-reviewed and I get letters about it all the time, wasn't a a big commercial hit. But that gave me so much more joy than doing some rewrite on some big movie because I was making something that I cared deeply about making so that I had this sense every day of making progress and moving forward and becoming closer to a perfected form of myself. We never get there, but some closer version of that. So I don't even think about risk. I don't process risk in the way you're talking about. I really think of all this stuff as what's the next thing that I want to do? Boy, this seems hard to do. How do I, how do, I do it?
2: So you don't ever feel that your inner self isn't capable or that you might not be? It just doesn't occur to you? It you did just, a long time ago, but it doesn't you, anymore. What, so is it because of the repetitive success that you've had?
0: I think morning pages, like, really? Because of Julia Cameron's morning pages. Really? Like, that's, the thing that, that's the thing that I then did when Dave was like, okay, we'll write this thing together.
2: So you just wrote I started doing morning
0: pages the way she talks about it. Three longhand pages, free form, not censoring yourself, not looking back and reading those pages. And in doing that, I started to realize, you know, who I wanted to be and who I needed to be and how to get there. It's not that I never have self-doubt. Of course I have self-doubt. We all have self-doubt. It goes back to that rejection thing. In the instant, you feel all of it. You feel rejected and worthless and like a failure. Some people can live in that state for six months. I live in that state for six minutes, maybe for two days. I learned how to put in place for myself a protocol, a routine, so that I don't get that way, right? I I do morning pages, I meditate, I take long walks, I go somewhere and I start writing. So there have been real low points in 2013 Dave and I wrote a movie that was a disaster, Runner Runner. We were going to be the showrunners for Vinyl. Uh, it was called Rock and Roll then. We never wrote anything. There was a political thing that happened at HBO and we got fired. And so within the same three weeks, we had this huge bomb of a movie and we were fired and I really did feel miserable and I felt like I wasn't sure where a path was open and it, I felt, I allowed myself to feel like this is fucked and unfair. But... Soon thereafter, I started making these, these vines, or in the middle of this, started making this series of vines about why and how to do this kind of work. And Dave and I, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, we started writing on spec billions. And each day that I would write, I became stronger. So that by the time we were halfway through billions, I had cast off that rejection completely. And I was only immersed in this work and in what was next. That's it because and uh, along with that is um, I never have a day that I'm not with my family unless I'm traveling. So that's the other like I spend mornings with them and I always take my daughter lets me still even though she's 17 walk her to school. So I'm still spending time with my family. And so if you if I'm doing that, if I'm like with them and I'm doing that work, I've won.
2: I think sometimes when people are so afraid of feeling fear or rejection or facing risk, they think that that feeling is going to last forever. And what I find is that if you do experience it and you allow yourself to feel it, it will sort of pass, like a lot of other things do, like hunger, like being tired, like any number of things, once you process them.
0: Look, it is a bad, fe- it's a terrible feeling. I- I'm not making short sure, shrift of it, and I- and oh, you know, I know. I'm not free know. of anxiety, <laughs> and I'm not free of fear, and I'm not free of hating rejection. I've just learned to manage it, and in managing it, you gain you gain power over it. Let's
2: talk about power. Let's talk about billions. Sure. <laughs> Congratulations on an amazing, amazing show, Brian. Oh, thanks. For those that might not have seen the show, it is a drama on Showtime, starring Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. You write it with your partner David Levine. Can you describe this series for our listeners?
0: Sure. And also, uh, Dave and I have a writing staff who work with us also and who are great and contribute uh, to the show mightily. Uh, Yeah, Billions is a show set in the worlds of high finance and the federal prosecutorial world. And it's about uh, Bobby Axelrod, who's a hedge fund titan, and Chuck Rhodes, who is a United States attorney for the Southern District, and about uh, Wendy Rhodes, played by Maggie Siff, who is a performance coach in the hedge fund world and also happens to be married to Chuck Rhodes, the U.S. attorney. It's a thriller in a way, but it it also offers sort of a forensic look at money, power, and influence in New York right now.
2: The first episode of Billions contains the best opening and closing scenes of any show I have ever seen, Brian. thanks. For anyone that hasn't seen the show yet, please be aware that minor spoilers will be coming. The premiere episode of Billions begins with Chuck Rhodes, the U.S. general attorney, being serviced by a dominatrix who puts a cigarette out on his chest and then urinates on the burn. We find out shortly thereafter that Chuck is the U.S. general attorney. Where did this idea come from?
0: The idea for that originally came from a movie that Dave and I made with Steven Soderbergh called The Girlfriend Experience. Yes, yes. And in researching that movie, we spent a good amount of time with really high-priced escorts. And it's an amazing thing if you're a writer. The moment you open a laptop, people will, especially if you're writing for the movies, will tell you everything about their lives. And so we would meet these women. They would come to Steven's office. We'd open the laptops and you know, say, tell us the most interesting, strangest stories Tell us about your life. They would tell us these incredible stories. And we'd get to the end of almost every interview, and we'd say, okay, is that it? And they'd say, you know, i got to tell you one other thing. (laughs) I'd say, what? And to a woman, they said, the most powerful man I see wants me to peg him. The first time you hear it, you go, what What do you mean? They go, no, no, the guy who I see who runs a business and has 1,000 employees... He wants to be dominated. He wants a cigarette put out. He wants to be peed on. He wants to be pegged. He wants to be dressed up and read to uh, like a child. And you hear it once and you just think, oh, well, that's an interesting anecdote. You hear it 25 times and you realize something about a certain type of person. What do you realize? It's about control and the release of control, the need to not be in control, the need to, after exerting that kind of power and influence, to surrender. Right? And a lot about a lot of other stuff, clearly, also. But we'd remembered that detail. And then when we were thinking about these kind of prosecutors, many of them who'd get in various scandals, we thought we could play with the idea of scandal, because the other spoiler piece is, it turns out that dominatrix isn't a dominatrix, it's his wife. And you find that at the end of the episode. And, in fact, we were interested in the accommodations people in a long-term marriage make for and to one another and about what if we showed a real marriage with people really engaging sexually with one another in a way that just isn't what you think of as a husband and wife on television. We knew we could play with these ideas. It just created something that would tell you a lot about these characters in a kind of a shorthand. And um, we were really happy to be able to deploy it there. And then, you know, the fact that we wrote the script on spec, so we didn't have a deal when we wrote it, meant that whoever was going to buy it, had, were, they were going to sign off on that right from the beginning and let us do what we wanted to do, which was have their, you know, supposed masculine lead character peed on at the beginning of the show.
2: There's this one scene when Chuck goes to the BDSM club.
0: When he does it when he's out of town or yeah. when he does it when he's in town? When, and he, the,
2: when he does it when the... The person at the club says, That's Does the, your wife "Yeah, the eleventh episode of the first season, yeah. which is just an amazing moment when you realize that this engagement that the husband and wife have, that Wendy and Chuck have, it has specific rules. This third person that they go to understands the dynamic between yeah. them. There's a depth to that writing, and that." relationship that is well, I've never seen in, a, in you two know, characters it's been on, r- on incredibly TV.
0: rewarding. We've gotten letters from Doms who've said, like, thank you for showing that our lifestyle isn't some aberrant thing, that we're people and we're living. We can have loving, caring, real relationships. Lots of people in the lifestyle have written and thanked us for it, that which is was great. Not episode. something I anticipated, but great that, to get sort of that uh, response from, from people.
2: Billions was the first thing I thought of when the supposedly fake CIA dossier came out detailing Trump's alleged sure. interaction with the urinating yeah, Russian president Yeah, a lot of people started, a lot of people tweeted about that. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> what do you think about the dossier?
0: Do I think that Russia has compromise? Yes.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the dialogue in Billions. It's very rat-a-tat-tat. My favorite line is I think a lot of people's favorite lines when Bobby asks Paul Giamatti's character, what's the point of having fuck you money if you never say fuck you? How do you come up with lines like that? Is it instant? Is it hard I mean, work? Is Dave it both? And I, is Dave it, and
0: I have how spent. How does that pop out? Well, we love this stuff. I, you know, explaining how dialogue is written is probably the hardest thing. It's There's a tremendous amount of rigor in deciding what to keep and what not to keep and in rewriting The writing part, you know, um, when we trade, if we've done the work of figuring out what the scenes are supposed to be, what the episode is supposed to be, and we go off and write the scenes, I mean, that's the joy part of it. That's what makes us laugh. Like, I'm constantly trying to make Dave laugh, and he's trying to make me laugh. You
2: also write as if you know the universality of people. In a short story you wrote titled Wednesday is Victors, a character is described as follows. Alec makes people feel good when they're doing something bad together, makes them believe they are conspirators in a great, joyful ruse, like they are the only honest ones in a game everyone else is too ashamed to admit they are playing. So everyone likes Alec. And it made me think that almost all of your unlikable characters are actually quite likable. Yeah, Even Michael Douglas' character in Solitary Man, you're still, you're hating him, but you're kind of sort of rooting for him. Well,
0: that's Michael's incredible gift as an actor, is that Michael can engage in any behavior and for some reason you go with him. Oh, yes. I mean, mean, the dialogue
2: and and his direction, it's quite astonishing.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, that's probably my favorite movie of ours. And I become, you know, when you're writing a character, you become fascinated by the way that they think.
2: I mean, Bobby Axelrod is an ass, but I love him. See, I love
0: Bobby Axelrod. I know that he does terrible things, but I understand what he thinks he's doing. Why he thinks he's doing what he's doing?
2: Yeah, but Trump's an awful person, and we don't. There's nothing that we can find likable. Well, that's does... an
0: awful. That's totally different. Trump has none of the charm of Bobby. Yeah, then, uh,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, Jamie and Lewis. If you look at what he did in Homeland, and now what he's doing in Billions. Yes. What a remarkable actor!
0: He's an incredible actor. In- incredible. Understand. And there, he and Giamatti and. Maggie Siff and Malin Ackerman. We have, we're just blessed with this cast who can take our words and really, really, really fly with those words. But also, I think our, our characters have always have a sense of humor. That's really what you're talking about and can make fun of themselves. So Trump doesn't never makes fun of himself. The only times that he tries to be funny are when he's putting somebody else down. Our characters see the world the way a certain kind of comedian sees the world. They see the sadness in the world or they see what's fucked up in those, the world. Yeah. So that even Bobby Axelrod understands the, the absurdity with a capital A of his situation, right? So that is a big part of it, is that these, even Michael Douglas in Solitary Man, he makes you laugh right from the beginning of being with him. And so when you're laughing along with someone, I mean, you know, endorphins fire, and you, they've made your endorphins fire, and so you are bonded with them. Now, none of that is something that I think about beforehand. I'm just writing these characters. But as I write them and as Dave writes them, they express themselves. If you look at Diner and She's Gotta Have It and Raising Arizona in Pulp Fiction, those movies have the same thing I'm talking about. They do. Those characters do that. Mars is a pretty shitty person in that movie. But you love him. Yeah, you're
2: still rooting for him.
0: You're rooting for him the whole time because he's funny and charming.
2: Yeah, that's the thing about Billions. You're rooting for all of them. Yeah. And you get really tense because you don't know where And we were really interested. To... So,
0: and I would say thematically what we were and are incredibly interested in. We're really interested in why as a culture we've decided that ambition and charm equal likability. What is it about people like Bobby Axelrod that makes them appear heroic to people? Because they're not heroic to us.
2: You've said that in Billions you're learning the way people in finance self-mythologize. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I, I honestly don't think you need to look anywhere but, like, on television to understand. I mean, at the, at the news to understand that. Uh, everyone's learned, everyone on, the, on any kind of public stage has learned how to tell their story and frame their narrative and make up the myth of who they are. That's so Trump branding Well, the Trump can stand, sure, but uh, the Trump could stand there. And tell a rags-to-riches story about himself uh, and reframe this narrative or frame the narrative, the myth that he's there for the little guy. You don't have to be a Democrat uh, like we are to understand that the notion that he's there for the little guy is ridiculous. But he stood up there and gave birth to this myth of himself and people bought into it.
2: You are using your Twitter feed, which is how we met, so to speak. You share a highly political, very critical view of the president-elect. What made you decide to use Twitter in this way?
0: I don't understand being on social media in any way other than openly and honestly. I'm not interested in using Twitter as a piece of branding for myself. When I started on Twitter, I had no following and I wasn't famous, you know, and I just decided to talk about whatever I was interested in. And over time, through this stuff, I have now have a group of people who engage in this conversation with me. And I think a lot of that, sure, some of it has to do with the work that I do or the podcast I host or the show, but a lot of it has to do with the way that I talk on the platform. And it's a conversation I want to engage in. It's a conversation I think we have to engage in. We have a duty to engage in it. So in the very beginning, I probably worried about losing people. Uh, Did you find that you did? I decided not to look. You know, I certainly do see that I've continued to have people who want to engage with me uh, on there.
2: Do you get a lot of blowback from people?
0: Sometimes, you know, I, my kids are very accomplished and sometimes I like to share their work on Twitter. So sometimes after it's a particularly political thing, like I'll unpin, if I've pinned a piece that one of them wrote somewhere, I'll like, particularly my daughter, I'll unpin pin it so people don't go after her but i mean if someone calls me a jew cocksucker i mean what do i what does that do to me nothing it doesn't know <laughs> who gives a shit i don't like the blowback doesn't ex- i mean who cares exactly. i like if someone i mean if someone comes at me with like a great argument i'm really happy to engage in that conversation that's really fun and maybe i'll learn something open but the blowback tends to be white supremacists going like fuck you jew and you know so what am I going to say? Actually, you know, I was raised Jewish, but I'm an atheist. I mean, I'm not going to, you know what I mean? You know, so I wouldn't if I were you. I like, you know, what can you do? You don't, there's no, you can't do anything with that. Just Move on. Brian, you have your own podcast.
2: It's called The Moment with Brian Koppelman, and it focuses on key moments that people have in their careers. What made you decide to start a podcast?
0: In doing this series of Vines that I did where I talked about creativity and giving yourself permission to do this kind of work, during that time, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and particularly listening to Marin and Elvis Mitchell and Carolla a lot. I would sometimes be listening to Mark and wish he asked a different question or I'd listening to Elvis and wishing the show was twice as long. Because Elvis asks all the right questions. Um, and then I went on a few podcasts. And when I did, I would get tons of feedback from people asking me to do it again, do more of it. And I just decided, fuck it. No, I'm going to I'm going to do this and see what happens. And realized that I had this organizing principle I wanted to chase, which was about inflection points, what I call inflection points in people's lives, moments of uh, real highs or real lows when they had to decide how to move forward. When and Even in great success, it's sometimes very hard to then figure out what the next steps are. My podcast is the show I wish I had when I was 25 because I could have used those lessons that people come on and, and give me and taken them and maybe I would have gotten where I got to sooner. And so I was shaken in the last few months, you know, in the shadow of Trump's nomination. I started really wondering whether these kind of conversations mattered anymore. And I took a two-month hiatus and then decided – I got my friend James Altucher, who's a great podcast host and writer, to come and do an episode with me. And we talked about whether or not to to do this kind of thing, At, at the end of which I decided I probably should. And I asked people to tell me what they thought. And the feedback really convinced me to keep doing it.
2: What made you question whether or not it was a valuable contribution?
0: Well, I really do think the house is on fire. So almost like any time spent talking about anything but how to resist civil liberties disappearing, right? When you talk about the direction of of my career in life, that thing that happened to me when I was 19 and I was organizing the boycott – like I can't ignore that that thread has run through a lot of my life, like figuring out the right way to live and the fair way to live and being accountable to other human beings. And I do think that all the civil liberties that all of us have really tried to secure for such a long time are close to disappearing. I don't want to be an alarmist. And yes, we have a governmental order set up to not allow that to happen. But I don't see a lot of resistance in the House and Senate. And he's gonna name at least one Supreme Court justice and probably two. And so I've decided, you know, I'm gonna use my voice in whatever way that I can and try to read and think and figure all this stuff out. I do think that the left needs a voice to counter O'Reilly on the right. Uh, I don't think that we have anybody really who's able to talk to most Americans in a plain, direct way. I think even words like civil liberties, people tune out. And we need to use words like freedom. The right has claimed all those words, and nobody on our side uses them. And so I look at Bill Maher and John Oliver, who are both great. But to me, they're preaching to the choir. And Maher is full of snark, and Oliver's funny. And on HBO, which is pay service that most people who are Trump voters don't have. And Keith Olbermann's not on television anymore.
2: Which is tragic.
0: And um, it is. And MSNBC, um, you can't find a bigger Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes fan than I am, but they're geeks speaking to other geeks. Right. We need And Keith we back. need somebody <laughs> to get up there and be able to talk really plainly about this stuff. And I'm certainly prepared to do some of that, too.
2: Oh, I hope you do, Brian. I really hope you do. Brian, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
0: Thanks for having me. This was really fun.
2: To learn more about Brian Koppelman, follow him on Twitter, at Brian Koppelman. Listen to his wonderful podcast, The Moment, with Brian Koppelman. And make sure you catch the premiere of season two of Billions on Showtime on February 19th. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters. And I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.